Well, good morning, everybody. Great to have you. I heard that. Someone said something. Who was that? You guys are always cracking jokes at me when I'm up here because I'm vulnerable. I can't get you all back at the same time. <laughs> well, good morning, you guys, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. This is the last Sunday before Thanksgiving. Um, we have some, like Jasmine said, we have some wonderful food out there. Luckily, we gave all the cranberry sauce out yesterday, so there's no cranberry sauce here today. I'm so happy about that. I'm so excited about that. Oh, we didn't? Sorry. Okay, I guess there's cranberry sauce here today. The only one I'm eating is Ingrid. Where's Ingrid? Ingrid, did you bring your cranberry sauce today? All right, I'm going to have Ingrid's cranberry sauce. Is it the sweet stuff? Yes. All right, I'm taking that this morning. So... Stick around, have some fun, let's be together, let's celebrate Thanksgiving together, let's, you know, get a little full before Thursday, you know, uh, there's mashed potatoes, stuffing, there's everything, we got it all out there, plus lots of desserts, so stick around, yes, it's cranberry, yes, absolutely, so, but before we do that, we are going to, um, we're going to invite God the Holy Spirit to minister to us this morning through the power of his word. Um, this is my favorite part of the time together. There's, there's no part that I don't love, but um, this part that we get to enjoy together this morning, I think, uh, is something that cannot be taken lightly. Uh, that the gravity of, of the, uh, the gravity of what we do this morning in this part of our service is should be considered um, to be really valuable um, because God speaks and most clearly he speaks through the word that he's given us and so when we want to hear God speak we read what God has said and so I'm excited because we're going to hear God speak to us this morning and I know it's going to be powerful because when the God of the universe speaks everything changes Things and people are transformed. People are never the same again. And I know that there's something that's going to be in here that's for you. Hopefully everything is for you. But I pray that God would minister to you this morning, that the Holy Spirit would do a spiritual work in you this morning as you ponder and consider and as we study the Word of God, and as we consider how God testifies to who He is unless the Holy Spirit works in me to do it. And it's the same for you. That I cannot consider these truths, I cannot consider the wisdom, I can't consider uh, anything that God says to be of any bearing on my life that I would want to follow unless the Holy Spirit does it in me. And it's the same for you. As the Holy Spirit lives in you and dwells in you, he testifies to who he is and causes you to change and transform your life and be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the changing of your heart. And he does it primarily through the working of his revealed word. And so that is the goal this morning as we do this and as we consider what God has to say to us today. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you, God, for this time, this gathering, this worship. God, I pray that it would be pleasing and honoring to you and just throne room in your dwelling, Lord God, and that you would be pleased with it, that it would be an aroma that uh, you enjoy, that brings you pleasure, Lord. That it is our worship, Lord God, that brings you pleasure, and it's you, God, who we worship, and it's you, God, who we consider to be the God of, of everything, the, the, the creator of the universe, the one who is before all things and, and is in all things and, and, and is after all things. God, you have no time and space, Lord, but you live outside of it and you live above your creation, God, and you, you, are, you are Lord and King and your word comes down from heaven and you plant it in the hearts of men and women so that we would know how to worship you. And so, God, I pray this morning that that would be our cry. That would be uh, what we desire and long for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 this morning. We are continuing in our series, Zest. We are looking at treasuring the trueness of the Holy Spirit. And we are appealing to the word of the Holy Spirit in order to give us understanding about who he is. 
And so when we, are, uh, when we come before God this morning in this, in this series, our, our goal and our aim is to know the Holy Spirit with greater understanding and clarity and greater intimacy this morning. And so that's kind of how we have formed and fashioned this teaching series. And I want to start with this. We, we've been talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about how the Spirit has a mind. And the Spirit has, a, has affections, just like us. And the Spirit has a will. And we've been looking at the will of God and the will of the Holy Spirit over the last two weeks. It's been broken up with baptisms and other things that have gone on. But I want us to get us back into what we've been talking about and discussing and thinking about uh, in this series regarding the Holy Spirit and the will of the Holy Spirit. So this is our claim this morning. Um, that, that we've kind of talked about over the last several weeks. That as a divine person, and the Holy Spirit is a person, he's not a force, he's not some mystical energy uh, that we uh, have to like summon or we have to conjure up in order for God to do things for us, right? The Holy Spirit is a person, he has attributes as God has attributes. And so we, when we look at the person of the Holy Spirit, we look at him as a person of the Trinity, and he possesses a will. The Holy Spirit possesses a will and accomplishes this will and the purposes of God as God. The Holy Spirit is God through his effectual work and this comes from his divine will. So God only does and accomplishes what is in accord with what he wills. And so that's what we've been talking about, how to understand the will of God. This is a complicated matter. It can be for us as Christians. But I think the Bible is clear. It makes it clear how we are to understand the will of God. How we are to think about the will of God and how he accomplishes everything that he desires. Both in the world, in humanity, and in you, and in your personal life. So my goal this morning is, and I hope our goal this morning is, is to get greater clarity about the will of God. And we gain greater clarity about the will of God to glorify God. We, bring, we give greater clarity to the will of God so that we know how he works and how it impacts our life. Ultimately, that's what we want to understand. So the wills of God, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. We, we looked at the scriptures and we, we said this, that there are basically two wills of God, right? That sounds weird. But, but we, if we were to think of the will of God, we were to think of it in two kind of distinct ways. Even though they're not necessarily different because they're from God, they're the will of God, they concern the purposes of God, we are to look at them maybe in two kind of distinct ways. And one is this, the sovereign will of God. And this is, this is God's ability to produce his desired outcome. And this is absent of any consent or negotiation. He's not appealing to men to decide whether to do something or not. Right? When he speaks creation into, into existence, he doesn't consult men. He doesn't consult some other deity. He doesn't consult other, uh, some other spiritual power. Right? God creates because it is within his sovereign will to do so, and he doesn't need permission from anyone to do anything that is in accord with his sovereign will. That's what we're to think about when we think about his sovereign will. This is what is accomplished in secret by necessity. So oftentimes we think of God's sovereign will as his secret will. We don't know. We don't understand. Things happen. God wills things. We don't know the purpose, the reason for it, and that's fine. We don't have to know. So much of our life is spent on trying to figure out what God is doing. But trust me, God will tell us what he's doing if he wants to. And we don't have to think about it. Okay? So this is God's secret will. His sovereign will. This term in the Greek, boule, means determination, decree, or secret thoughts. There's a, a word... Um, this word is used in the New Testament. I want to just go there really quick. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 14. This is what Paul says. This word, will, is in this text. He says, in him, in Christ, we have, look at all these beautiful blessings, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the human insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to, here it is, the counsel of his will. All that God accomplishes, everything that Paul lists there, your redemption, your forgiveness, uh, your inheritance, all of those things God does by the will of God, by the wisdom of God, and he does those by his sovereign will. It is his counsel by which he does those. In other words, he did not look to you to do any of these things. He didn't get anyone's permission to unfold the plan of the gospel in Christ. So that's where we see his sovereign will. Secondly, and this is what we're going to focus on, is his preceptive will. Okay? His will that we don't know, that is secret, and God has a will that we do know. And you may say to yourself, well, how do I know that? Well, we're going to see, we're going to see in the text how it is that we can know God's known will. So his known will is that which is knowable, understandable. We can understand God's will in part. Not all of his will, but this part of his will we can. So it's understandable to us. God has explicitly revealed it to you and to me. Referring to the preferred will of God. This is what God prefers. But here's the thing. Man... God has, has decided in his sovereignty, man can either accept or reject this will. So this is a knowable will and accept or reject it. So this is his perceptive will. In the Greek, thelema is the word. It means this, act of will, sovereign pleasure, what gives God pleasure, wishes or desires. And here's the key, to be recognized. These are the wishes and desires of God that we can recognize for the expressed purpose for obedience. See, God gives us his revealed will, shows us his will so that we can see it and follow. So these are the two wills that we are looking at. And specifically this morning, we're looking at his preferred or his knowable will. So God's will in this way is intelligible. It's understandable. It's, it's primarily made up of his commandments, his instructions, his precepts that we find in his word. His perceptive will makes known his character and establishes what is right for us to do, showing us what God loves and conversely, what God hates and rejects. Yes, God does hate things and God does reject things. He also loves things. So 1 Thessalonians, you stay in, you stay in Exodus. I'm going to just take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13. Uh, one, sorry, 1 through 3 really quick. This is where we see this. And to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more and more. You, but for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So here we have the will of God, the revealed, knowable will of God, tied to instructions, commands, what God has revealed. And so Paul is saying, hey, we have shown you how to live. I have lived out and I have modeled for you how to live that is in Christ Jesus in accord with my faith in the gospel. And so I have now modeled for you and shown you how to live. I have given you instructions on how to conduct yourself as a church, as followers of Christ, as people who have believed and have received the gospel. And he says, listen, this is all for one purpose because it is the will of God to sanctify you, to set you apart from everything else in the world. And so right there we see that the instructions of God are for this purpose to will your sanctification. And here is how we see these two wills taking place. It's so different than maybe the sovereign will of God. But here's what we have to understand this morning, is that God's perceptive will or his preferred will or his knowable will holds us accountable for how we live. 
It is the righteousness that God wills for us to know and to practice. It is his righteous rules. Yeah, that's right. God has established rules for us to live under, to bring him glory, and to worship him. So what does it look like? Where can we find examples of God doing this with his people? There's a pattern. And it begins in the Old Testament. So I want to begin there, and then we're going to work our way through the new. But God's noble will is established primarily through his revealed word, through the covenants that he's made with his people. I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. If you're there, good. Um, I'm going to go back, and I want to read this to you. This is kind of a long text, but it's important to understand the flow of how God is dealing with his people in this text. It's a, it's a famous passage. I'm going to start in verse 19, in chapter 19. We're going to end in, in chapter 20. And I want us to start really here in, ver, in chapter 19, verse 1. Israel uh, is uh, on the run. They are in the wilderness. They are at Mount Sinai. It's three months after they have experienced deliverance from Egypt. And, and this is what it says in verse 1. On the third new moon, which means the third month, because the calendar of the, of the Israelites back then was a lunar calendar, so every month was a new moon. So every time you counted a moon, it was a new month. So in the third, in the third moon, or the third new moon, this is when this happens. This was three months after uh, coming out of the land of Egypt. It says this, On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses, and here's where I want us to notice something. Moses goes up three times, three times to meet God. And I want us to see these. First time, here we see it. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." Not only that, this, this contract, this covenant that God was about to establish with them gave them rights to a land, and it was essentially a land lease agreement. God would, would go on to say, if you obey my commands, follow me and worship me, you will have every right to this land that I'm giving you. But if you do not, there are consequences to that. It's kind of like if you go and rent an apartment in Portland, you sign a lease, you agree and say, I will do this, I won't do this, right? And if you break that agreement, if you break that lease, that, land, that, rental, that rental apartment guy has every right to say, see you later. I mean, maybe not so much anymore, but it used to be that way. Now you can just stay as long as you want and do whatever you want to the place, but that's neither here nor there. We won't go into that. But it used to be that you signed an agreement, you broke the agreement, you broke the covenant, and there were consequences. This is no different that we see here with God. So look at the stipulation. What does he say? Obey my voice. Keep my covenant. And what is the blessing? You will be my treasured possession of. This is the first glimpse we see of what God's going to do with his people. He says, you're going to be treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and, we shall, uh, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. Moses comes down. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. He will do. There was an agreement. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. This is the second time Moses goes up to meet with God. God tells him of the day that's coming where he's going to give his commandments verbally to his people. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today. 
and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so, and he said to the people, Be ready. For the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, this is the day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled with fear. They were set before a holy God and they were seeing God's uh, complete ability to control creation. It is God in his majesty coming down and he expresses and demonstrates that through thunder and through lightning and through a thick cloud. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp. They're trembling in fear. But he brings them out to the camp, out of the camp to do what? To meet God. To meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. Oftentimes we see fire in the scriptures depicting the presence of God. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, there's a crescendoing effect going on here. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Once again, this is his third time. He goes back up to meet with God, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people. He wants them to warn them again, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them will perish. This is sort of God establishing boundaries for his holiness. He's saying, I am holy and set apart, and you must consider me to be that kind of God for you. He says this, also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. And come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down and told the people what God had said. Third time. And so they're all there. They're all congregating around the mountain. Thunder, smoke, lightning, fire. It must have been quite a sight to behold as God was meeting with his people and showing himself to his people. And they're all there. And then what do we read in verse 1, chapter 20? And God spoke all these words. Everyone could hear so that no one would be confused, so that no one would have an excuse that they would not know who God is. God spoke to all of them and said, I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So much shadows and types when you think about the gospel. God rescues his people from physical slavery, but Christ comes and fulfills that by rescuing us from the slavery of sin. You see Christ all over the, New Test or all over the Old Testament if you look hard enough. All of the Old Testament is meant to point to not you, but Christ. And so we see here, God says, I have done this for you. And because of this, you shall have no other God before me. Commandment one, this is God's will for his people. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god god does not share his holiness his majesty his power with anybody 
God is a jealous God and is righteously jealous because the image of who he is will, should never be slandered or misrepresented. But God holds his people to a standard that says, you must worship me for who I am, not for who you want me to be. So he says, don't make anything in the likeness of me. Because for you to be able to think in your finite mind what I might look like is just lacking any reverence at all for who he is. So he says this, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But watch this, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. What amazing promise that God has given not only the people of Israel, but for us today. He shows his steadfast love to those who love him and follow him. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, this is not just simply swearing. Some people might just think in a fit of rage, you just say the Lord's name and it's, and it's out there and you pronounce it. And while I would say this probably kind of fits into that, this is much greater than just in a fit of rage or an act of anger saying, using the Lord's name. This is much greater than that. This really speaks to this idea of speaking for God what God is not saying. This is carrying God's name into emptiness, worthlessness. It's much bigger than just one little utterance of his name, which is something that we should practice not to do. But it's much greater than that. It is essentially ascribing zero value to the name of God and to misrepresent God by speaking for him what he's not saying. We'll see that in a minute in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. This is a principle for us to keep. Not, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. Jesus has kept the Sabbath for us. He is our rest. But there is a principle here that we should consider to honor God as holy. Right? And to honor God with our work and to honor God with our rest. That God has rested and so as he has rested from creation and his work, so it is that we are to rest as well in honor of God, whenever that may be. God wants you to work, to work diligently and, and to perform work because that's what we were created to do. But he also wants you to rest because he has rested. So this is a principle that I think is good to keep, but it's not a command we have to obey being it on that similar day. But the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, do no work. This is another command of, of the Lord. Verse 12, honor your father and your father. Treat them well. Respect them. Give them breakfast in bed if that's what it takes. Something, I don't know. Everyone should honor their mother and father. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they were trembling. Interestingly, the whole earth trembles just as the people tremble at the sight of God. They tremble and they stood far off and they said to Moses, no, 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 you speak to us. We cannot handle to hear from God. No, you, you speak, we'll listen to you. So you hear from God and then we'll listen to you, Moses. Moses said to the people, do not fear God. 
For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. And that is no different for us today as Christians, that we should fear God, respect God, love God, worship God. Do not misrepresent God. Do not carry God's name into worthlessness, but to honor him and love him. to follow him, to be disciples of him. And so the people stood far off while Moses drew back to the thick cloud where the darkness, where the darkness was, where God was. Why do I go through this passage? Because here we find the beginning. I shouldn't say the beginning, but an instance where God has made known his will to his people. We don't have to guess we don't have to speculate. We know how God called his people to live. And more specifically, in this context, Israel. I'm going to take you to a couple different Old Testament texts and then I'm going to tie this into our living today. You don't have to turn there with me. You can just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 4. One through two. This is just before they were about to come into the land. This is Moses' kind of farewell speech to Israel, reminding them of who God is, God's commands, God's instructions, God's laws. And this is what he says Deuteronomy 4 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not, watch this, add to the word I have commanded you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Do not add to God's word. Do not take away from God's word. So when I stand up here and when you listen to anyone that's preaching God's word, if anyone decides to add to God's word, you might want to test that word. If anyone is taking away something from God's word, you might want to test that word. You might want to use some discernment and you might want to use some right judgment because God is clear. What God has spoken, no one will add to and what he has spoken, no one will take anything away from. And so when I come up here and I want to show, the greatest challenge is for me to show you what God is saying without adding to it my opinion, my wisdom, but not take away for a fear that you might reject God's word and me. So that is how we are to understand God's word. And this is what Moses said to them. Verse uh, 35, same chapter, 35 through 40. Look at what Moses says to his people. He says this, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you, that he might instruct you, that he may disciple you, right? So it's clear that when they were there in Exodus 20 and they heard the command of the Lord, they heard. They heard with their own ears the voice of heaven. Moses confirms it right here in the text. He says, and on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance at it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth there is no other therefore in other words in light of what i just told you about god you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which i command you today and here's the blessing it will go well with you and your children after you I see a pattern here deuteronomy 7 
verse 6 through 11. Moses says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Sound familiar? Exodus 19, out of all the peoples, fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. And watch this, keep his commandments to a thousand generations. See the pattern. See the picture. See what's happening here. He's delivered his people, and the people's response to his deliverance and his work is to follow him, to love him, to obey him, to love his commandments, and to follow them as a means of worship for him. But there is a problem. Men don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. And I know you don't like to do that. And Israel didn't like to do that. So God gives Israel judges to rule over them, to show them how to live. And this is what he says in Judges, just a couple books after Deuteronomy. Judges 2, 16 through 20. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. And the repetitive theme of judges is this, that the people did what was right in their own, they rejected God's word. They did not want to live the way God had called them to live in response to what he had done for them. And so chapter after chapter after chapter in Judges says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Isaiah 30. 8 through 10. I'll start in verse 1, actually. Judah's up against it here. Israel's up against it. Assyria's coming. They're about to be invaded. In fact, part of them had already been invaded. Coming from the north to conquer them. And Israel decides, hey, we're going to make an alliance with our enemy, Egypt. They didn't appeal to God, they didn't consult God, they didn't want anything to do with God. In fact, they were in that position because they rejected God. And they didn't want anything to do with God. They went after other gods of other nations that surrounded them. And listen to what Isaiah says to the people of Israel, or God says through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 30, chapter 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine. And who walk, who make an alliance, but not of my spirits, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt, going back to their captors, going back to slavery out of fear of their enemies from the north without consulting God, without you know, looking or trying to discern the counsel of God, without trusting God. No. The word of God was very rare in that time. Verse 8 through 10, same chapter. God says this, And now go, write it before them on tablets, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. No, what do the people of Israel want? They want smooth things. They want things that they want to hear. They want their prophets and their seers 
to prophesy not destruction and judgment, but victory. Yet there's no obedience in the land to God. So he says, they don't want you to prophesy from God. They want you to prophesy out of your own affections, what you want to say. And so God says, these people do not run after my word. They don't care about my instruction. They want smooth things. They want prophecy and illusions. They leave the way and they turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. See, in their time of distress, in the time where they were going to be, there was, the attack was imminent. And they understood why they were in that position. Because they rejected God. They didn't want to hear anything about God. They didn't want to be held accountable by the prophets and the seers. They wanted smooth things. They wanted to hear things that sounded good to them. So often that is how it works today. Everyone we run to, we only run to those who are going to tell us what we want to hear. We want a word from God, we want direction from God, but we're only going to go to those who are going to tell us smooth things, unfortunately. Not necessarily what God is saying, but what we want God to say. And we count it as God's word. So, here's the case. Building and building the case. God has given us his word. God has given us his instructions. God has given us his commands. And he says, follow me. Follow me. I've told you how to live. I've shown you how to live. I've given you my will. I have communicated clearly how I want you to live. And the thing is, is with this will, we have a choice. We can either reject or we can follow. And this plays into the New Testament. So I want to just briefly go to the New Testament and see how this works for us. Because under this old covenant that God was dealing with his people with, it was a covenant of works. It was a covenant of the law. It was a covenant that said, do this and you'll get this. Do this and you'll get this. This is what you were to do. These are the blessings. If you don't do this, these are the consequences. And that's how God dealt with his people in the covenant of the law, in the old covenant, right? And so God being the same God establishes a new covenant in Christ for his church. And this is now the covenant we live under. We live not under the covenant of the law. We do not live under the covenant of our works. We do not do anything, perform anything to uh, persuade God to save us. But now in Christ, we have been given a grace. We are under the covenant of a grace that is from God. It is a gift from God that we get to receive by faith, not by anything we can do. That is the essential message of the gospel, is salvation and redemption and forgiveness by faith, not because we have caused God to act on our behalf through our obedience to him. But that does not in any way cause us to disregard a desire to follow him because he's still given and it's shown to us in the New Testament. Jeremiah prophesies about this in Jeremiah 31, 31. This is what he says. He says um, in, verse, in verse 31 uh, through 34, this is what he says. Behold, the days are coming, this is, may, may sound familiar to you, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. In other words, the law will be in your mind and in your heart. The law will no longer be some, some existential, external thing that you just must keep. The law will be in, in us. And this is sort of a precursor to the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian. 
and giving the Christian the ability and the capacity to follow God from the heart, not just through the performance of works. So he says, I'm going to write this law, my commands and my will on their heart, in their mind. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. And so here we have the establishing of this new covenant. Luke refers to it in Luke 22. 19 to 20. This is what he says. And he took bread. This is at the communion table. And we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten it, eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. People, through the shedding of blood in the Old Testament, it is brought to its grandest fulfillment as Christ sheds his blood for the establishing of the New Testament and the new covenant that we now live under. We now live under a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace, not established by your spiritual work, but established by the supreme work of Christ. I need to get that through you today. Although we participate in spiritual work, spiritual discipline, all of these things are good and right and healthy for the Christian. I need to say this emphatically that God's covenant with you through Christ is not based on your work for him. Because if it's based on your work for him, then Christ's work is completely diminished, undermined. It is left worthless. So, the, the begin the, at, at the very beginning, when you begin to think that you are impressing God with your spiritual work, think about the work of Christ. It is by his supreme work that he establishes his covenant with you by faith. But, and there's a but... And this comes back to his revealed will. That does not mean that we somehow get out of following God's commands. Even Jesus says this in the Gospels. I'll take you to John 3, 16 to 21. Famous passage. Used a lot. There's so much in this. I want you to see. <clears throat> Jesus speaking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send, and everyone stops there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when Jesus comes for the first time, he doesn't come to condemn, he doesn't come to judge, he comes to save. He comes to save. Whoever believes in him, watch this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only, is there a command here? Believe. Believe. So there's still a command, right? And there's still a blessing. And if you do not obey that, there is a consequence. Those who have not believed are condemned already. What does that mean? That we all stand condemned outside of Christ. Everyone stands condemned outside of Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. We do not, we're not born saved. But I can't sit here and stand here 
and be honest with you and to try and tell you the truth and take away from the word of God. I can't do it. You may not like it. It may not sound good to you. It may sound harsh. But it is the word of God. God is extending an infinite amount of grace in this time frame in our earthly history, in the history of the universe. God has sent his son so that all who may believe will not be condemned, but be saved. But all who don't believe, if you reject Christ, you will be condemned. In fact, you are already condemned. That should be heavy to your soul this morning. As you go about your week, as you're ministering, as you're evangelizing, as you're as you have moments to speak about Christ. Jesus goes on to say, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 5, 18 through 24. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, meaning Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Some people will read this passage and see, See, Jesus is subservient to the Father. See, Jesus is less than God. But what does John say? He does and says all these things for what purpose? To make himself equal with God. So if you read that out of its context, that's what you come up with. But if you read it in its context, you understand the reason why Jesus is saying all these things? It's not because he wants to show himself to be less than God. It's because he wants, him show himself, he wants everyone to understand that he's equal with God. He is God. So he says this, I don't do anything on my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is, himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Right? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as the, they honor the Father. Whoever, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, here it is, and what? What does it say? Whoever hears my word in what? Believes. Believes. Him who sent me. What's the blessing? Eternal life. So God has shown us his will. It's not just for Israel in the Old Testament. It's for the church today. You to believe. It's for you to believe. So that you would have eternal life so that you would not be condemned, but be received by God, so that your time of alienation is over, so that your time of separation is done, so that you can come to God in peace, love Him, worship Him, honor Him, and be assured of salvation. Here's part of the problem. Oftentimes, we, in evangelicalism, like to search after God's sovereign will. In other words, we just want to find out what God doesn't want us to know. And we're so busy chasing after God's secret will His known will is kind of pushed off to the side. In other words, we don't really want to know what God has actually shown us how to live. We just want to hang out in the secret place of what God has not revealed to us. And so we do that at the expense of knowing what God has said and following that. We seek men. 
not God. To provide instructions on how we are to live. We lust for the words of men instead of the word of God. We're obsessed with advice for those who claim to possess divine insight into the future. It is common practice today for believers to leave the commandments of God to just chase after the words of men. And that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you've created your own laws, your own commands, and you've left God's command. God's command, you live by your own. It's a dangerous place to live. So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? Why do you need to know this? Because even under the covenant of grace, established by Christ's work on the cross, the Holy Spirit is still compelling you to know, love, and follow his commands. But luckily for us, we're not left to our own best guesses. We don't need to speculate. But we know how to live before God because the Holy Spirit has shown it to us in his word. He has shown it to us. He has revealed it to us. And now we can live by it and follow it. I'll give you an example. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. Look at what Peter says to the church of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus eleven forty four. See, Peter has this wonderful way of taking that Old Testament command bringing it right into the new. Right into the new. And so it is for us today that if we follow Christ, the command for us is to be holy. The command for us is to follow in his ways. That is his command for us. It is his revealed will for us. So let's consider the will of God. Let's consider the revealed will of God. Let's consider what God has actually said to us. Let's consider how he has called us to live in light of his word. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared in worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for your blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of your great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. <laughs> Interesting. He has redeemed you and rescued you from lawlessness, which means commands. Christ has come, and he has died for you, and he has redeemed you, and by faith in him, you have received the Holy Spirit, which gives you the capacity to understand and know the will of God. And that is how we are to understand the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit does things in secret, things that we do not know. He does things that we are not supposed to know, that we're not intended to know. But here's the thing. We're not to be bogged down in the mysterious of what God is doing right? But to receive it as a blessing, to accept it as his will. But what we are to do is to understand the will that God has shown us. And the will that God has shown us, he's revealed to us through what he has spoken. And then he gives us the power and the capacity through the Holy Spirit to live out that very word in Christ. And that is how we are to see that. That is how I think the scriptures show the will of God. So when you go about your week, when you leave here today, after you fill your stomach with lots of turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing. Yes, cranberry sauce. I want you to know this, that you don't have to grope in the dark to understand what God wants you to do in life. He has given you his will. And here's the thing, when we're pursuing the will of God 
in holiness and desiring to be sanctified, he gives us discernment and right judgment to make decisions about our life. You can go about your life and just make decisions. Why? Because God has given you discernment and good judgment through the power of the Spirit. When you're pursuing the will of God and when you understand His will and how He wants you to live and you understand the holiness that He's called you to, it clears your conscience. It's, it frees your mind to be able to say, you know what, God? I'm living before you holy and righteous. I want to serve you and honor you and love you. And so I'm going to make this decision because I think that's the best thing to do. And God, I pray that you would bless it and be with me in it. You don't have to overthink it because God has given you tremendous discernment through the Spirit and to rightly judge all things in your life. So when you go to live, don't worry about the mysterious that God is doing behind the scenes. But focus on what God has shown you how to live with His Word. Amen? And, and that's really how we are to see the Holy Spirit and the will of the Spirit in our lives. So let's stand this morning. Let's stand.